0: I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, October 20th. This is an election update from Post Reports. So, Paul, um, tell me who you are and what you do.
1: Uh, I'm Paul Kane. I'm the senior congressional correspondent for the Washington Post. That means that I'm the guy who's been around longest. I just keep covering Congress year after year after year. I'm I'm the definition of insanity, I guess. I keep doing the same thing, hoping there's going to be a little bit of a different result. <laughs>
0: So when you look at the Senate right now and the members of the Senate who are up for reelection and who are in competitive races, what does that look like?
1: Republicans are defending 23 seats and the Democrats are defending just 12. And most of those Democratic seats are in really, really safe places like Chris Coons in Delaware is a Democrat mm-hmm. who's up for reelection. He is not facing any real tough competition uh, from Republicans there.
0: But, but for Republicans, are they facing a lot of pretty competitive races?
1: Yes. This is their class of 2014 that is up now for the first time. For re-election. That class of 2014 was the one that vaulted Republicans into the majority. They had just spent eight years in the minority. In 2014, they had this class. They had people with military backgrounds like Tom Cotton and Joni Ernst, and, and most of them had not had a whole lot of political experience. They, they seemed like outsiders. And a lot of them are struggling because there's a identity factor here where they've only been around for a few years, and so much of that time was just dominated by Donald J. Trump.
0: And how does the influence of Trump affect what they're looking at in terms of their chances of actually being
1: reelected? So far, uh, it has been largely a negative force. Trump is just, throughout his handling of the coronavirus, His approval rating hasn't plummeted around the country, but it sure has sagged. It hasn't gone up. He hasn't had any sort of rally around the flag effect. And the result is that in places like Alaska, places like Kansas or South Carolina, where Trump won by double digit margins in 2016, he's winning in those places. But he's winning by small single digit margins, hmm. and all of a sudden, these Republican senators, Dan Sullivan in Alaska, uh, Lindsey Graham in South Carolina, there's an open seat in Kansas, um, so it's a uh, you know first time statewide candidate for the Republicans, Roger Marshall, they're just sort of looked at as these generic bland Republicans, and that has caused a lot of trouble for Mitch McConnell's majority. You know, it's a generic Republican running in a state where Trump isn't doing as well as he should. You look at other places there, you've got Colorado, Arizona, North Carolina, and Maine where Republicans are running. And in all four of those states, Trump is either behind decidedly or maybe behind just by a little bit right now. And that's a that becomes an anchor weighing down those candidacies of people like Martha McSally and Tom Tillis.
0: I I want to talk a little bit about some of those races and the particulars of of what Republicans are facing there. Maybe we can start with Tom Tillis in North Carolina.
1: Uh, North Carolina was always going to be probably the most important Senate race in the country, but I used to say that it was the most important, boring Senate race in the country. Um, (laughs) As of a month ago, you had Tom Tillis, who was like I've been saying, a really bland, generic Republican who had not done a whole lot in his first six years in office. And he was running against Cal Cunningham, a Democrat who had like briefly served in the in the aughts uh in the state legislature and kind of just sort of floated around for a bit. And uh, he's been running really as a completely generic Democrat in an environment where if Biden were to win the state, Cunningham looked like he was going to be, you know, a point or two ahead of Biden. Hmm. But now in the last few weeks, on the same day
2: just got some breaking news, a statement put out by uh, incumbent Republican North Carolina Senator Tom Tillis, who is also up for election 32 days, that he has tested positive.
1: Um, we believe Tom Tillis that announced that, event- that he had tested positive for coronavirus, and within hours,
3: all right. Lots of news to get to today. Democratic U.S. Senate nominee Cal Cunningham admits he exchanged sexually suggestive text messages with a woman who was not his wife.
1: Cal Cunningham admitted that he'd had a sexting affair.
3: He says he has no plans of dropping out of the race late yesterday. Cunningham it really
1: apologized. took this race from, you know, like you know, really boring, not a lot going on to, oh, holy cow.
0: <laughs> Very eventful.
1: Before all of this broke, Tillis's problem was that he was seen by many of those MAGA, the hardest core Trump voters. He was seen as actually really just an old fashioned traditional Republican. They know that Tom Tillis originally opposed the border wall.
2: Senator Tom Tillis represents the state of North Carolina. He opposes the wall. Senator Tillis joins us on the set here. Senator, thanks for coming on. Glad to be here. So what do you and by think- the way, I don't oppose the wall.
1: You don't. Yeah, I oppose I oppose putting a 30-foot structure on the top of a 33,000-foot uh, sheer cliff. Until he realized after two weeks that he was probably going to lose a Republican primary. And so he reversed his position on it and uh, tried to get in line with Trump. It helped him. That, that fended off a primary challenge. But he was always three, four, five points behind Trump, Hmm. even if they were both losing, Tillis was always in worse shape because there was just a a feeling of lack of trust from those real MAGA voters.
0: And that's what I find really interesting about a lot of how Republican senators have aligned themselves here, is that it is clear in a lot of cases over the last four years that the only way to win as a Republican is to align yourself with Trump. But at the same time, no one does Trump as well as Trump does. And so it does feel like there is a limitation to how effective that strategy can be for some of these Republicans.
1: Yeah. Now, after four years, that math has gotten trickier and trickier for Republicans because the, the suburban vote, Take a place like North Carolina, Research Triangle, Raleigh, Chapel Hill, Durham, that area is punishing Republicans right now. Mm -hmm. And a guy like Tillis, they're punishing because they feel like he has been aiding and abetting the the Trump administration. Now, then you have a problem for Tillis. It was like, okay, if all the suburbanites are going to break hard against him, he's got to go make up that vote in that rural MAGA country. But there is just a corner of the vote in North Carolina that does not trust Tom Tillis because they are hardcore MAGA voters and they know that he only switched his position out of political expedience.
0: And, and can you take through some of the other races that are seeing a similar dynamic where Republicans who have tried to occupy a middle ground of being close to President Trump most of the time, but still pushing back some of the time that they are being punished for being in that middle ground?
1: Oh, sure. The biggest statistical chasm that you can point to is South Carolina. Lindsey Graham, who's been in the Senate for 18 years now, the first 15 of those years, Lindsey Graham was kind of a freewheeling, maverick, quasi-moderate, but always looking to make deals. He was best friends with John McCain and, um, Graham ran against Donald Trump in the Republican primary four years ago. He got trounced. He didn't even make it to Iowa, but still was a loud opponent of Trump's. Donald Trump is the most
2: unelectable Republican I've seen in my lifetime. He's a race-baiting, xenophobic, religious bigot. He's a
1: jackass. Once Trump won, Graham reversed course and decided to become an ally. It hasn't worked. There are voters in South Carolina that just don't trust Lindsey Graham, and that's why Graham has drifted into a very close competitive race with Democrat Jamie Harrison. There are other states, too, where this dynamic has played out. Interestingly, in Maine...
0: That was going to be my, my next question, because Susan Collins, I think, is a very interesting example of a senator who has, at least in speech, tried to be more distant from the president, often talks about how she is concerned about the president's actions or that she is disappointed, yeah. um, though she tends to still vote with the rest of the Republicans in the Senate. So what is the challenge that she's facing here?
1: For Collins, she has... 24 years of her own brand built up in Maine. So she's different than these first term senators like Tom Tillis. You know, Most of that time has been very much trying to occupy the middle space between the two ideological flanks. In the Trump era, it's just harder to do that And she is doing much better than Trump is statewide in Maine. So there are still some independents there in in Maine who who are supportive of her. But the math has gotten trickier.
0: So when you look at the political landscape as a whole, how many seats actually have to change from Republican to Democrat for control of the Senate to flip? And from what you're seeing now, what is a sense of how likely that is to happen?
1: One way to look at the Senate map this year is, is the, the way the Republicans have broken things down. They sort of have Tier 1, Tier 2, and then the third tier, which are the sort of the crazy wildcard races that are charging onto the scene late. Tier 1 are their most vulnerable seats And that has always been Cory Gardner in Colorado, Martha McSally in Arizona, Susan Collins in Maine, and Tom Tillis in North Carolina. After that, the next tier uh, have been – and like these are the races that Republicans absolutely have to win to make sure they hold on to the majority. Joni Ernst in Iowa, Steve Daines in Montana, and the two Georgia Senate races – David Perdue, the incumbent, and then uh, the special election to fill Johnny Isaacson's seat, currently held by appointed Senator Kelly Loeffler. Those four are the next big targets for Democrats. And after that, it's when you sort of really get into the holy cow, if this goes completely south for Republicans, they're in a lot of trouble. And those states that they're, you know, pouring money in now to just reassure themselves uh, are South Carolina, Lindsey Graham, Kansas, the open Senate seat uh, for retiring Senator uh, Pat Roberts, Alaska, Dan Sullivan, and uh, to some degree, Texas with John Cornyn. There's just been a lot of uh, talk about the Biden campaign doing really well in Texas. And if so, he could bring Democrat M.J. Hager along with him.
0: So that's that's all to say that Republicans in the Senate right now are probably pretty worried.
1: Yes, yes. Not full on panic. They still feel like in Iowa, Joni Ernst is in a toss up. You know, it's it's, it's she's still in the fight. And the other states that I was mentioning earlier, Alaska, Kansas, South Carolina, um, you know, if things would go completely south on Trump and the Republicans and a couple of those seats tip to Democrats, you know, that means we'll know very quickly within a day or two that the Democrats have the majority. But the Republicans generally feel that if all those voters come home, if they realize in the final two weeks that this is red shirts versus blue shirts, you know, forget about your worries about this or that. If it's just a simple partisan fight, they feel like their candidates can win those races and they'll be okay. You know, that's... It's probably accurate if people do, if there are just more Republicans in places like Alaska and South Carolina than there are Democrats. So, how many people are going to cast a vote for Donald Trump for president and then turn around and vote for Jamie Harrison, who would be the first black Democrat elected uh, to the U.S. Senate in the Deep South? I don't know. I don't know.
0: Paul Kane is the senior congressional correspondent for The Post.
3: Facebook has taken steps to limit political advertising, including no political or social advertising after the election, to limit misinformation and confusion that can come in the form of ads. Twitter doesn't have political ads, but they've enacted tons of policies that are similar to Facebook. For one, they are banning misinformation about voting, specifically calls and misinformation that could distort people's understanding of the voting process. For instance, statements like on Election Day, I see there's really long lines at these polls when there actually aren't really long lines. Or people saying, I think there might be immigration agents standing at the polling stations. That's happened before on social media. That was a meme in 2018. Well, that's not allowed. President Trump has refused to commit to a peaceful transfer of power if he loses the election. And that is like the nightmare scenario for a lot of people, including the tech companies. He may tell the world that he won when he actually hasn't won in an ad that has runs the risk of going viral. And so there you're seeing tech companies, they're going to essentially, if anyone says that, they're going to redirect people to authoritative voting information. My name is Elizabeth Waskin, and I'm the Post's Silicon Valley correspondent.
0: What are the tech companies doing related to trying to tamp down on some of those conspiracy theories, or particularly when it comes to a group like QAnon that has really run rampant on the Internet in a way that is really misleading to a lot of people?
3: Yeah, so QAnon is like the most interesting case study because it really became a Frankenstein under the tech company's watch and also utilizing social media's company systems just as they're designed, I always say. When QAnon started, the approach to conspiracy theories was, look, we allow misinformation. People can say what they want. You know, the tech companies have been all about free speech basically until the last few months, until the pandemic and the election, until 2020. They've been completely all about free speech. Twitter's attitude was literally anything goes. They didn't have a misinformation policy until this year of any kind. Facebook's attitude was, we will fact check misinformation. But as I've reported, when it came to misinformation in private groups, which a lot of, a lot of the QAnon activity and anti vaccine activity is being stirred up in private groups. They don't fact check private groups in the same way. They never applied the same standards to private groups because they felt like, look, these are people seeking out this misinformation. And these are people who also expect a modicum of privacy because they're in a group. And so the policies were never uniformly applied.
0: And so it seems like in some of these scenarios that tech companies are finally realizing, like, we can't just consider this a form of free speech that can just be allowed to run rampant on our platforms. Like, we have to find ways of pulling this back.
3: I mean, these groups have gotten bigger and bigger and bigger, especially in 2020, because they've been energized by the issues of 2020. What's happened, though, is that it's come right up against new policies that the tech companies have launched. So for the first time in 2020, they're saying, wait, we're going to ban misinformation about the coronavirus. We're not just going to fact check it. We're going to ban it. If you say that immunity is universal after you get the coronavirus, that's a false medical statement because nobody knows. We're going to ban that. We're going to ban information about false cures. We're not going to say people should be able to drink bleach. So they've taken up this new responsibility. And then all of a sudden these groups, which they effectively allowed to grow and grow and grow, under their watch and benefiting from their tools,
0: suddenly they are saying no. But even though these companies are putting some of these new policies in place, it does seem like the situation does get pretty complicated pretty quickly. And it's not completely clear that companies like Facebook and Twitter always know when and how to execute on these new policies.
3: Yeah, what I think is fascinating is the degree to which you can see the companies absolutely learning as they go. They're planning. It's not for lack of planning. I think Facebook has planned or considered 70 different scenarios basically starting since after the midterms, you know, and Twitter has considered more than a dozen scenarios.
0: And When you say scenarios, like different election-related scenarios or things that people could say or information that could be released that they'd have to respond to?
3: Exactly. Some of these are like real-time drills and simulations. Others are just discussions of if X happened, what would we do? Which is why what was very interesting was recently when there was a story in the New York Post, mainstream American news organization, newspaper, and they have this story about Hunter Biden's emails. But the provenance of the emails has always been questionable. And yet we all know that even with a story that may have questionable facts or is misleading, we know those stories can go viral. And so what you saw immediately was that within hours of it already trending on Twitter and doing well on Facebook, Facebook throttled the story and said, we're going to basically reduce the reach of this story, limit our algorithms from spreading it, until it's fact-checked. And what you see with Twitter is that Twitter just went up and blocked the link and said, we're blocking the link without that much explanation beyond a link to a policy that said this was our policy prohibiting the spreading of hacked materials. And so there's lots of questions about the story, but the one question that has not been resolved or is clear is whether it was hacked. And yet Twitter blocked a link from a major American news organization, which is really, really a rare action. And even what Facebook did is also a rare action.
0: And, and even for me, I remember in that moment seeing discussion on Twitter of like something related to Hunter Biden or something related to the fact that a story from the New York Post was blocked. But I had to actually like go to the New York Post website to be able to see what the actual story was and that it just you couldn't find the link on social media, at least for that window.
3: Exactly. You couldn't click on the link. And even Twitter then took the additional step of freezing the accounts of major people and organizations like the Trump campaign and the White House press secretary, Kayleigh McEnany. Fast forward 24 hours or a little more. And all of a sudden, Twitter says that they basically made the wrong move. And they changed their policy on a Thursday night, late. And the policy now says, okay, well, we're still going to ban hack materials, but we're only going to ban those links if the hackers themselves post them or if people affiliated with those hackers post them. And so that would exempt news organizations. You know, throughout the day, they were getting huge backlash, not just from people on the right, but also journalists raising questions like, what's the precedent that this sets? And I think it's fascinating because This was exactly the scenario that the companies planned for on some level. They they planned for hacked materials and so they saw everything through that lens. And yet it turned out that the situation, while it involved materials with questionable provenance and Hunter Biden's emails have always been a question, they weren't prepared to react. Facebook's throttling as well is interesting because now you see that over time, a week or so later, you see that the story actually has two million interactions on Facebook, which is a huge amount of interactions. What looks to me is it may not be throttled anymore. And Twitter also ended up releasing the link.
0: And so it feels like... Even though these companies have been trying to prepare for these moments, trying to think about a holistic philosophy behind these decisions that have a lot of real world implications, that once the, the scenarios actually come to life, that they're still in this position of making up rules on the fly and also struggling to figure out exactly how and when to put those rules into practice.
3: That's the most fascinating part about it is that we as journalists will look at the 2020 election, those of us that cover social media, as a huge test case for whether these platforms can withstand the kind of interference and meddling that we saw in the 2016 election. Can election integrity be preserved on social media during a critical election in the world's biggest democracy? And we're seeing it play out in real time. We're seeing swift and aggressive decisions. We're seeing backtracks on those decisions the reality changes so quickly and the ground changes so quickly that in some ways they're still not prepared.
0: And, you know, it seems like in all of these scenarios, what, puts companies like Facebook and Twitter in such an interesting and complicated situation is that their platforms were designed to let or make things go viral, to disseminate information quickly around the world. And it seems like that now they're trying to dismantle some of the basic parts of what made their company so successful in the first place.
3: I always find it ironic when Facebook or Twitter says, we're taking steps to limit the reach or limit the virality or demote this content. And you're like, you're taking steps against yourself because your system is what creates the virality you see that they just, for a long time, were completely hands-off about false information. They didn't want to see the ties that that had to violence. They didn't want to intervene in private groups. They didn't want to stop communities that they felt sought out misinformation from getting what they wanted. And all that together... Created this Frankenstein that we see now, where now you actually have a public that's very primed to believe in conspiracies, to doubt the election. You have a president that is pushing out misinformation. And so when you put all that together, you may not have seen these types of megaphones be as pernicious as they are today.
0: Elizabeth Dwaskin is the Silicon Valley correspondent for The Post. now, one more thing from reporter Craig Timberg about the fake Twitter accounts posing as real Black people, all in the name of President Trump.
2: There were several accounts that popped up a little more than a week ago that purported to be from Black Trump supporters. And what we tended to see was These words, yes, I'm black and I'm voting for Trump, followed by three exclamation points. So there were more than a dozen accounts that had this exact same language, which is, of course, is a tip off that something unusual is happening. So my name is Chikari Jackson, and I've been a Portland police officer for almost 10 years. I've had two Twitter accounts where they used my picture in my uniform. It was like, you know, hashtag cops for Trump. Had a lot of followers A lot of retweets. So this exact account had 24,000 followers and uh, one of its tweet got liked 75,000 times.
1: Scary. And so when you find out that you've been used and you've been put out there, you know, yes, I'm a police officer, I'm also African-American male. And so you you just don't know the dangers that, you know, people are putting you in and, and I don't think they care.
2: Nobody knows for sure how many fake accounts are out there. I've, I've heard estimates as high as 15 to 20% of Twitter accounts being fake. These accounts particularly did something that was called digital blackface, which is we presume these were not actual you know, black voters who supported Donald Trump. They were accounts that were intended to look like that. And that has become a very common tactic. In 2016, one of the most common things that the Russians did was to have fake accounts that were supposedly from African-Americans and targeted them. And we've seen that again, you know, repeatedly in 2020, that it's an audience that's perceived to be reachable over social media. And if you can get people to, you know, to switch sides or, or as this happened in 2016, just convince African-Americans not to vote, that can be consequential in an election. So that's a very common tactic, I'm afraid.
1: You get used as a pawn and then, you you know, you get dangled out there. But then, you know, when you are pushed as, you know, an extremist on one side, well, there's always a different side, a different extreme that can come looking for you. You know, there's dangers in that.
2: I think one of the important takeaways here is that by the time we discover this kind of manipulative behavior, the damage has really already been done. These fake accounts purporting to be from black voters, you know, reached like, you know, 265,000 other accounts in just a few days. And so, you know, we read a story about it. They get taken down by the company, but of course those messages are already out there. Given how liberal the companies are in allowing a certain amount of, of sort of questionable behavior, if they're all they're going to do is respond when it becomes a problem, you inevitably just end up with a whack-a-mole kind of situation. It pops up, they hit it, it pops up, we write about it, then they hit it, but the net effect is the same, which is that the game really works. It works for the people who are trying to manipulate us.
0: Craig Timberg is a national reporter covering technology.